pray for us. We're continuing our series called Journey to the Cross. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, that you meet with us, that you carry us uh, through difficult times, that you meet with us at the mountaintop, that you are ever-present all the time. And God, I pray you'd meet with us in these moments as we open up your word. I'm not that interested in what I have to say. I doubt many people here that concerns what I have to say, but will you speak to us? Will you please engage us with your word, with your thoughts? Help us to think your thoughts. Help us to transform us so that we wouldn't be just conformed to this world, but we'd be transformed into the change agents you desire for us to be as we live here as your ambassadors in this world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, today's message is really a continuation from last week. If you weren't here last week, I asked everybody to consider if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? And I started off by talking about the different questions that we ask throughout life. As kids, oftentimes your kids ask you questions about what can I have? Can I have a snack? Can I have more time on the tablet? Can I please stay up later? Can I have a baby brother? Like they ask all these different requests of things they want. They ask questions of origin, where do babies come from? Listen to last week's message if you want a messed up version of how to answer that. I asked some of these questions that we ask, but then I said, as we get to be adults, we ask bigger questions. What's the meaning of life? Why am I here? What's my purpose? What job should I be doing? Where should I live? Who should I marry? What school should I go to? And they're really questions only God can answer. And I challenge you with, if you could ask God one question, what question would you ask him? And different people ask different questions. Some of you put them on my Facebook page. If you want to see some of the different questions from people, you can go to my page and see that. Some of you emailed me. Some of you maybe still right now don't know. What would, if I only got one, because somebody in my small group even said, if, it's the fact that you said there could only be one that was the hard part. And to try and make it personal, I said, well, what if Jesus was up here after the service? Like he's sitting here on the steps and we all line up and you get one question, what would you ask? Well, today I'm going to flip the script on you. Not that you get to ask a question, but you think about the questions we have to answer. So think about when you were a kid, too. You've been asked to answer questions your whole life. And I was thinking about when I remember being in school. I remember one time in fifth grade, uh, it was the biggest project of the year, and I did nothing to get it done. I wasn't ready at all. And so I was kind of a wing it kind of kid. Uh, Ferris Bueller was a mentor to me, for those of you who are familiar with that movie. And uh, I remember when the teacher called on me for it, and I was like, oh, no, you're asking. And did you ever have those moments when you were a kid and maybe you were the person that knew like every answer and you had it on. I know we have a lot of smart people in our church. I wasn't that person. But did you ever have those moments where the teacher asks a question, you know you don't know the answer and you just start thinking to yourself, don't call on me, don't call on me, don't call on me. And it's like you're honing in all the energies that they're going to call on you. So it's like, Scott, because that's how teachers sounded in my memory. Scott, you know the answer? I don't know, just leave me alone. But when authorities ask you a question, you got to answer. I think about when I've been asked questions by police officers. Yes, another story for another sermon. <laughs> if a judge asks you a question, been in that experience. If, you're, if somebody asks you a question, you've got to answer the question. And so we talked about last week the questions that we have for God. What about the questions that he has for you? And so you go through Scripture, and you see he asks a lot of questions through Scripture. In the garden, where are you? <laughs> it's not because he didn't know the answer. What about Abraham's wife? She laughs when God says what he's going to do. Why did you laugh? It's to get to her heart. He knew why she laughed. You get to the New Testament. Jesus asks questions. Peter walks on water but then starts to sink. He says, why did you doubt? (laughs) Did you see the water, Jesus? He knows. But he's asking, why are you afraid? Do you love me? There are a lot of questions that Jesus asks throughout the scriptures. A lot of questions we see God the Father asking throughout the scriptures. What question do you think he would ask you today? Today's message is titled, Life's Most Important Question. And when I use that title, it makes me think of in my own life. I remember when I was a senior in high school, 17 years old, a guy started a Bible study at my public high school. 
And as he was doing this Bible study, I started going. I was not a believer in Jesus, didn't go to church or anything, but was inter- I had questions like questions that I would ask God, like, why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Is there more than this stuff I'm experiencing? And he, he challenged all the kids that were coming to this Bible study to hand out these little booklets. And on the cover, it says, life's most important question. When you open it up, it says in there, if you were to die today and meet God, and if he asked you why he should let you into his heaven, what would you say? And I remember getting these books, and not even a Christian. I worked at a men's clothing store at the time. I remember I would give them out to the people that would buy suits from me. I'd put them in their stuff, and they'd get their suits tailored. I'd have these philosophical conversations. I didn't even know who Jesus was, but in a personal way. But I talk about this. But that's not life's most important question. It's not the first one in the book. There's a question later in the book, and I'll share that with you, hopefully, later in the message. But today we're going to talk about life's most important question. And different people will debate about what that is, but I think, I think the one we're going to ask today is the one. And I think it's the question that God wants to ask each one of us. And he gets to it in Mark chapter 12, if you have your Bibles. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. In Mark chapter 12 and verse 35. And for those of you who haven't been with us through this series, we started a series called A Journey to the Cross back in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1. And the reason why we're calling it A Journey to the Cross is because in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1, what happens is the beginning of the last week of Jesus' earthly life. It's what Christians oftentimes call the Passion Week. It's this last week where Jesus is on his way to the cross. And so Mark chapter 11 all the way to Mark chapter 16 and verse 8 is this journey that Jesus has to the cross and then ultimately his resurrection, which we'll come to on Easter Sunday. And we saw in Mark chapter 11 and verse 1, it starts with what oftentimes Christians call Palm Sunday, where people were laying down palm branches and laying down their jackets and they were shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And we saw that Jesus' journey to the cross is a journey to lasting joy. It's ultimately our praise that completes our joy. We have this joy and it's welling up in us, but then we we express it. It's like a way for us to complete the joy that we have. And these people, they're doing that, but many of them don't even really totally understand who Jesus is. And we see that because the next day what happens is Jesus came into Jerusalem that day. It's a Sunday. The next day he comes back into Jerusalem. It's a Monday. Curses a fig tree, which is kind of confusing. But he's given an object lesson for what he's about to do in the temple. And in the temple, what happens is it's Passover week. There's about two and a half, 2.7 million people there for the Passover. They're sacrificing all these animals. They're selling animals. There's money that's being traded. It's a part of their worship. And Jesus flips over these tables, tells people, stop, cut it. You can't come through the temple. He shuts down worship. And he shows that his journey to the cross is an end to empty religion. He says, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. That's a place of communion. Prayers ultimately are dependence upon God. That's why we're told to pray without ceasing, continually be dependent upon God in communion with him. But you've made it a den of robbers. He's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, where people are pretending like everything's okay religiously, but that's not what's happening in their hearts. And they've got a bunch of false gods. He says, stop, because I've come to give you authentic relationship. He leaves. The next day is Tuesday. He comes back into the temple, which I just think, Jesus, there's so many things to praise you for, but you are awesome because you just turned over the tables and it would have been real easy to kind of slide off like I showed them. He comes back. (laughs) They're cleaning up the temple. And then the big shots there, the the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the elders, the chief priests, they come and they confront Jesus and say, where'd you get this authority? Who do you think you are? And then Jesus really turns the tables on them, shows that his authority comes from God. But they won't acknowledge that. And so then they try to trap them with some questions. And last week we talked about those questions. They're hypocritical questions. That's when we ask a question, but it's not our real question. There's ignorant questions where we ask questions, but God's already actually told us the answers in the scriptures, and we need to study the scriptures to get the answer. And then we saw that there's a a genuine question that comes from a guy that we wouldn't have expected. He was a teacher of the law. And then he puts his life on the line. He says, Jesus, you answered right. I think the relationship is more important than the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. 
And we didn't spend much time talking about it, but let me pick up reading in verse 34 from last week. It says, when Jesus saw that he, this teacher of the law, had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far. He's not in yet, but he's headed down the path. The questions that we ask, they dictate the direction of our lives. He's not far from the kingdom of God. But then get this part. And from then on, no one dared, and I underlined that word, no one dared ask him any more questions. And then our passage for today. And while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, okay, so now they're done asking questions, now Jesus is going to ask some questions. He asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? First question he asked. And then he goes to this psalm. It's Psalm 110, if you want to look it up on your own, in your own study. It's the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament, quoted about 33 times. It says, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared. And so this is, this is the picture of what the scripture is. It's men writing things down, but guided by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's God's word. David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. They're all going to be at submission to you. And then he says, here's the riddle, the question. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be David's son? And then look at the next verse. The large crowd listened to him with delight. The interesting thing about that last part, the large crowd listened to him with delight, is the same phrase that's used to describe how Herod Antipas would listen to John the Baptist. He loved, he enjoyed the teachings. It didn't stop him from cutting his head off, though. And it's not going to stop these people from denying Jesus and putting him on a cross. What the scriptures warns us of is that we're not to be just hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And so we've got to ask ourselves, we don't ever want to be those people that go to church and go, oh, that was a good message, or I didn't like that one, or stepped on my toes, or whatever the thing was, and then we don't do anything about it. Because that's what these people were doing. So Jesus asked this incredibly important question. It's the question that uh, Dr. Danny Aiken, he's the president of Southeastern Seminary, he writ- he's written a commentary on the book of Mark. I read it almost every week uh, preparing for, for these sermons. And he says, it's the question of the ages. The question that I'm going to say to you is the life's most important question today. And here's why. Because the question he asks is a question about the identity of the Messiah. And so the way I'm going to phrase it today is just simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And how you answer that question dictates everything about not only your life here, but your afterlife. How you answer that question determines your eternity. Who is Jesus to you? And how you answer that question also changes how you view everything here on this earth. Every circumstance you go through is shaped and changed by the way that you view Jesus. Who is Jesus? It'll change the way you go through difficulty, through trials, through losing jobs, through people, loved ones that you lose, through difficult relational situations, stresses, financial burdens, through the way that you experience victories and the good things that happen and promotions and you have a baby and you get married and all those things that happen. The way you view Jesus changes all of that. It is life's most important question. So who is Jesus? And Jesus confronts these people here this day with that question. And think about how this this happened. And so there's this intensity of the moment where Jesus has just flipped over the tables. There are all these people worshiping. And so he's already shown, he confronts their hypocrisy. He confronts their empty religion. And he's come in and he's shown them, I'm I'm not worried about your authority and your power. He's already predicted. These are the very guys I'm going to be handed over to. I'm going to be murdered by. And he's not afraid of them. And so then they try to trap him. Because they're such people pleasers, they've got to figure out a way to not get the crowd mad at them, but still kill Jesus. 
And so they come and they start asking these questions, hypocritical questions, ignorant questions. They don't even believe in the resurrection. They're asking questions about the resurrection. He says, if you'd read the Bible, he quotes from their book in the book of uh, uh, Exodus. It's the second book for them. He says, he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And this one guy sees it and he's like, I wasn't planning on asking any questions. But I've had this question my whole life. And I think this might be the only person that can answer it. And he steps up and he says, what's the most important commandment? Like, if I could just know that, I'd be a great starting place. And Jesus answers, love God, gives him bonus material, and love people. And then there's this guy, and think about his situation. His buddies are planning to kill Jesus. This could cost him his life. And he says, you're right, Jesus. I mean, some of you, you debate about, what well, if I get baptized, what are my parents going to think? How's this going to happen? This guy's like, right, I'm going to align myself with this guy. Because that's what you're doing when you get baptized. You're saying, I'm associating with that message. I'm identifying with Jesus. And he's saying right here, I'm going with you, Jesus. What you're, he doesn't say it's equal to. What, what you said is right. It's more important in the middle of the temple where you just turn over the tables, more important than sacrifices, more important than offerings, is to love God, authentic relationship. And then Jesus says, you've answered wisely. You're on the right path. And then there's that word that I mentioned, dare. No one dared ask any more questions. Now think about what the moment had to feel like for you not to dare to ask a question. You've got this question burning inside, you won't dare to ask the question. You ever been dared to do something before? Think about it. I look at my, one of my Marine friends over here. I'm sure you've been dared to do stuff. I think about when I was in school. I grew up in Michigan, and it was never 70 in February in Michigan. It'd be like a thousand degrees below zero. At least that's how I remember it. And I walked uphill both ways to school and lots of snow and I had to climb snowshoes. That's how I tell my kids. But it was cold regardless, even if I'm exaggerating my stories. And I remember, I dare you to stick your tongue to that pole. <laughs> Did you ever see the Christmas story? Ah, look at those out there. Remember those dare? I remember daring, you know, daring. I would oftentimes try to be the one that was, was daring rather than the one doing the thing because the things you dare people to do is usually stupid. I dare you to shoot your neighbor's house with a BB gun. You know, I dare you to cross the road without looking. I dare you to, whatever the things are. You know, all these different dares. I dare you, go, go dance with that girl. You know, dare you to do these things. But eventually, with everybody, it doesn't matter how risky you are, how courageous you are, how foolish you are, everyone comes to some point where you go, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And so here's these people. They're not, maybe they're not ready to ask their real questions. They realize what happens when you ask hypocritical questions. They haven't taken some of these things serious enough. And they don't dare. They're not going to, the intensity of the moment, I'm not going to dare ask Jesus a question. So Jesus goes, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions now. Here's the first question. And, and the way that he asked it, and the way that I phrased it in, in, our, path, in our sermon today is really clearly seen when you go to the parallel account. So if you want to study this passage and see what Matthew says about it, it's in Matthew chapter 22. But in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus says it like this. What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. And then Mark tells us in a more succinct way. He just, it's kind of an assumed that everybody just agreed. And all the Jewish scholars, all the Jewish, they did believe and they believe today. That the Messiah is the son of David. And by son of David, they don't just mean he's like born from David. It wasn't Solomon. They're, they're saying that he's a descendant of David. But they don't believe that he's the son of God. And they don't today either. For those of you who have Jewish friends. They believe that he's going to be a leader. They believe that he was going to, they believed at that time, the anticipation was that he would free them as a nation. But he didn't realize that he was going to save their souls. They didn't think he was the son of God. What they believed was Right. He is the son of David. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in that famous Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a son is born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, and the government will be on his shoulder. And it talks about the kingdom of David. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see it. It's mentioned all throughout the Old Testament. They were right in believing this. And then here he goes to Psalm 110, and he quotes Psalm 110, and they believed this was true. And if you go through Mark, Jesus has been mentioned multiple times as the son of David. You go back to the story of Bartimaeus in Mark chapter 10, verses 47 and 48. Bartimaeus is a blind guy. He's on the side of the road. Jesus is coming by. There's a huge crowd. But he just starts, he doesn't care. He is a hot mess. But he thinks the only person that can help him is Jesus. And so he starts shouting out. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David. He does it again. People tell him, rebuke him. Be quiet. Cut it out. Stop saying that. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He's acknowledging he's the son of David. He yells it again. Shouts all the louder. Jesus, son of David. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. The transfiguration happens. And, and he's called God's son there. And the, uh, the triumphal entry, I mean, when he comes in in chapter 11 happens, and they're shouting that he's the son of David. He's coming in the name of our father David. His kingdom is coming. Chapter 11 and verse 10. And Jesus is not rebuking that. He's acknowledging he's the son of David. He's not rebuking them for saying that he's the son of David. They're right. The problem is they're incomplete. They have an inadequate view of the Messiah. When we have an inadequate view of Jesus, we will have an inadequate commitment to Jesus. They have a right view. It's just not complete. And many of us, we've got right things that we think about Jesus. But we focus and we hone in so much on those things that we miss the other things. Like we, we talked about today, he's a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. We talk oftentimes that Jesus is a personal savior. That is true. But oftentimes what we could do with that is we end up treating people, Jesus almost like he's our buddy. Like he's our friend. Like, geez, he's with me. Jesus is my homeboy. Like we're together. It's cool. And you like your friends, right? Like your friends understand you. Uh, they're the people you go to through difficult times in life. You don't worship them though. And that's what ends up happening with us with Jesus. We make him, a, it's true, it's just incomplete. You realize this, how personal he is, you miss his power. Do you realize he's your judge? He was the creator of the world. He's the redeemer of your soul. And so we focus in on his personhood and how personal he is and we miss his power. Or we focus in on his power and then we miss his personhood. You, you focus in on his imminence, how present he is with us, we miss his transcendence. Or you focus on his transcendence, we miss how personal he is. Either way, it's wrong. We talk about Jesus as a teacher. He's called teacher, rabbi, all throughout the New Testament. And many times, especially as Americans, because we want you know, solutions and answers and we specialize and we figure stuff out and y'all are smart people. And so Jesus being a teacher, that's appealing because we've got questions. Answer our questions in life. What do I do? What's the formula? How do I know? How do I manage my finances? How can I raise these kids the best way? How can I have the best marriage? How can I do this? What do I do during difficult times? Jesus, be my teacher. Teachers are great. They help us with stuff. You don't worship a teacher. He's not just a teacher. He's not just your friend. He's not just the son of David. He's the son of man. In fact, that's a title that we see probably the most common title that Jesus uses of himself. It might be his favorite title of himself. And we will just read through, and I'll just be honest, in my own Bible study sometimes, reading through, you see the title like son of man, and you're like, well, that sounds kind of human too. Son of man. And maybe you got a good Bible, a good you know, NIV study Bible or an ESV study Bible, and it'll give you a note. It'll say, it's in Daniel 7. Can I be candid with you? A lot of times, I don't want to turn all the way to the Old Testament. Like, I just keep reading and go through the thing. Let me encourage you, when you get that, and you're studying your Bible on yourself, sometimes flip back and, and just see. What does it mean that he's the son of man? It gives you this Daniel 7 passage. Let me read you some of what Daniel 7 says. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Daniel having a vision. It says, in my vision at night, I looked, 
There before me was one like a son of man. He's talking about Jesus. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days. That's God the Father. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. What did that look like? What does it look like like, to have God the Father give you sovereign authority and power and glory? And then it says this, all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. And you saw this, Daniel? What was that like? Every tongue worshipping him, every language worshipping him, his dominions an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's what it means to be son of man? Well, I thought it was, he was man. But there's more. There's more to Jesus than oftentimes what we comprehend. When we have an inadequate view of Jesus, we'll have an inadequate commitment to Jesus. Let me tell you, when you read Daniel 7, Jesus is not just your buddy. But he's not just the son of man. He's not just the son of David. He's also the son of God. In fact, that's what Mark has been about from the beginning. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It can't be any clearer than Mark 1, verse 1. This is the story, the good news, the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God. Then fast forward all the way to what we'll get to at the end of this series, Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. The centurion sees him die. Now think about who a centurion is before I read you the verse. Centurions have seen a lot of people die in a lot of different ways. They would not be easily shocked by someone dying. Many of us, you know, we see blood or if we see someone die, it'd be just a difficult thing. Not for the centurion. Matthew actually tells us that when Jesus died, darkness covered the earth, the earth shook, and dead people came walking out of their graves. That's not normal. Mark gives us, this is the way that Mark writes, it's a more succinct version, but Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. And when the centurion stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, wrapped up in how he died, is that darkness covering the earth, the temple veil is torn, the earth starts to shake. And he said, Surely this man was the son of God. This guy was different. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the son, what does it mean that he's the son of God? Well, it means more than just, well, God, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my, you know, the transfiguration, the baptism. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He is God. He is God. So the question to your riddle here, Jesus, how does David call him Lord when he's his son? Because the idea here is that the father's always over the son, right? You'd be in subordination, but then he's calling him Lord. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Messiah is fully God. He's fully man. He's both. And that's the answer to your riddle. How can he be the son and the Lord? Because he's both God and man. And so he's not denying he's the son of David. Genealogy in Luke. Genealogy in Matthew. He's been called that by Bartimaeus. He was called that when they were coming in. But he's also saying there's more to it. And you guys don't get it. When you have an inadequate view of Jesus, you have an inadequate commitment to Jesus. And so what he does next is he exposes their inadequate commitment to God. Because they're expecting. They don't think that Jesus is the Messiah. And so they're expecting them to, God to send a Messiah. But is it really that big of a deal? Because when you have a, a view of God that's, inadequate, when you have a view of God that's not really that compelling, let me tell you what the temptation to do is, is to use God to hide your true gods. We have a temptation to use the one true God that we'll claim to worship to hide what our true gods are, our functional saviors, the things that we put in the place of God. And that's what Jesus calls out in these guys. And let me tell you why Jesus is doing this. It's not just to blast them. It's not to be like, yeah, that's what you get, teachers of the law. This is the end of his public ministry. And Jesus cares for these guys. There's one guy that's not far, but there's some other guys that are pretty far. He's lovingly exposing them. 
That's what God does with our sin. It's not just to call you out, not to make you feel bad, not just so you feel guilty. He exposes your sin so that then you'll deal with your sin. He's exposing their sin here. And it says in verse 38, so these people, they're delighting in his teaching. And so Jesus decides to roll with it. They love the teaching. I'm going to keep going. They're hooked in with this question. I'm going to keep going. As he taught, he said, and here's the to-doing, watch out, beware. There's some dangerous out there. Warning, be aware. Watch out for who? The teachers of the law. Why the teachers of the law? Here's why. They like to walk around in flowing robes. Jesus didn't like the way they dressed. So you know there's more to it than that. That's why you laugh. And they like to be greeted in the marketplace. He's not condemning them because they're extroverts. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor, at banquets. He's exposing their hearts. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely, he says. So what's Jesus showing us here? Well, if you go back to the passage, you see what's happening is he's exposing their false gods. But these are the guys, these are the guys that in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is teaching and says, hey, if you want to be good with God, your righteousness has to surpass that of the Pharisees. And everyone's going, uh, that's not possible. These are the guys that we go to for answers from the Bible. These are like the most righteous guys. These are the ones, they represent God to us. And Jesus is exposing them, but he's not just exposing them. He's exposing what they like. And so if this identifies with you, I'll let the Spirit do the work on that one. They like to walk around in flowing robes. It wasn't that Jesus didn't like the way that they dressed here. The flowing robes were a symbol of their status, of their position. And what he's exposing them for here is that their position is really their God. They use God to demonstrate, I have this position, so you must think that I'm pretty awesome because I've got the position. And before you condemn them, it's like, yeah, religious people shouldn't do that. Religious people, religious leaders, myself, anyone that's in religious position should be taking a lot of warning from this passage. But any of us that thinks that the position is going to deliver something to us that ultimately only Jesus can deliver. It's like kids, you know, you, we laugh at our kids like you tell them no for an ice cream cone and they fall down and it's terrible. They think in that moment, if I just had that ice cream cone, my life would be complete. And some of us think, if I could just get that scholarship, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just get married, if I could just, if we had this position, this status, then my life would be complete. That's a functional savior. That's a false God. And it won't satisfy. And he's saying to them, you've got that. And we see it with this robes that you're wearing coming through so that people will see you and they'll know your position. It's the God of position. And be greeted in the marketplaces. Notice it says there to be greeted. It doesn't just say like you like talking to people. No, it's to be greeted. This is a very social status conscious society that he's speaking to. And their rules were that if you bumped into each other and in, in the marketplace, you're out in the lobby, wherever it was, the person of lower social status had to greet the person of a higher social status. And so he's saying you love to be greeted. And that was why it was a big deal when rabbis or teachers of the law would be the ones that would greet people. It showed their humility, but not these guys. You get the God of pride. Pride's driving what you're doing. And that pride is what you really live for. And you can hide it in various ways. And you can even make it look spiritual. And so you got the pride of the weak person that pretends like everything's, you know, everyone hates me and woe is me. And you got the pride of the arrogant person. Look at how awesome I am. He's a God of pride. And have the most important seats in the synagogues. And these are seats that uh, they were sitting with their backs to the scriptures and facing the congregation They're up on the stage. And so those of you who've ever gone to the church where everybody sits up on the stage, just kidding. He's not talking to Baptists. Or maybe he is. If you long to be there because you want to be honored, then yes, that's what he's talking about. The God of honor. 
in the places at banquets. It doesn't mean it's wrong to have like a VIP pass or to sit in the front row or whatever, the 50-yard line, whatever the, the deal is there. It's, it's again, appealing to their pride. You've got, you're, it's exposing that really the issue is so that you can be seen, so you can have the praise of other people, so they can tell you how great you are. And we talked a bunch about people-pleasing a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to rehash all of that, but that's the gist of what's happening here is that you've got to have, you think you're actually mistaking other people telling you how great you're doing or whatever's going on in your life for God's approval. It's not wrong for you to want the approval. The problem is you're going to the wrong source. These people that are fallen and broken and they can't give you what you actually need anyways. And so you use them, but they're your functional saviors. And and the reality is you you don't really understand the true savior. They devour widows' houses. He's exposing their greed here. What it means that they devour widows' houses, lots of scholars debate about this, and there's a lot of historical background on it. Nobody knows really for sure is the, the genuine answer. But we do know that teachers of the law then were not allowed to receive a salary for their teaching. And so the temptation for them would be to take advantage of the hospitality, especially in widows. Widows were considered the most vulnerable people. Take advantage of the hospitality of widows. And so they're probably leeching off of them. Uh, some people write that they were actually the estate planners for widows. And so they were conniving and manipulating them to get things from them. So you're devouring widows. And really what it exposes is the greed in your heart. And then you make these prayers to try and put on this piousness, this righteousness, and these lengthy prayers. So I decided we're going to start timing everyone that prays. Just kidding. Just kidding. I was conscious of it when I was praying today. That I didn't want to pray for too long, but confession. But the point is really not how long they're praying. The point is why they're praying. They're not even praying to God. They're praying to be seen. They're praying for this show of it so that other people will praise them for the righteousness. It's the praise of people again. He's exposing to them these gods. But then the, the question becomes, why? Why do they do this? Because these guys, they know the Bible better than everybody else. Why are, why are they doing this? Because they got an adequate view of God. They don't have a compelling view of God that he's better, that he's worth more than anything that they could possibly gain in this world. So they don't get it. And so he's showing them, your hearts, they're actually far from me. And you say these things and your lips, you praise me, but your hearts, they're not there and I want your hearts. He's lovingly exposing their sin. Not just calling them out so they look bad and from all these people they're trying to get praise from. He cares about them. And he cares enough to not just leave them in the spot that they're at. And the same thing's true for you. And you might have a different functional savior. I was watching a, a testimony of a guy this week. He had a 10-year addiction to pornography. That was his functional savior. He was a Christian the whole time. Knew the Bible answers, said, I read the books. And he said, my problem was I tried all these methods. I tried all these tactics to try and overcome. And I didn't want to, and I'd feel so guilty. And he said, but then I finally just realized Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else that I would want. At this point, he had been eight years since coming out of that addiction. And my question to you is, when I ask you, who is Jesus? Is he better than any functional savior? And I think of the psalm in Psalm 63, and I debate, this might be my favorite psalm, but I also really love Psalm 139. There's some great psalms. But Psalm 63 in the first three verses says, Oh God, you are my God. Really? Is he your God? Or is he kind of God generic? Because the temptation for church people, and if you're here today, you're church people because you're in church. I don't care if you haven't gone to church in 30 years, you're here today. You're here today, you're church people. Temptation for church people is we know things about God. He's like generally true. We believe in God. It's not that we don't believe in God. We believe that he's, even the demons believe. They believe that God's out there, but he's just kind of generic, like, oh God. And so of course we're going to be tempted to use God to hide our true gods. But David, who's fleeing in the desert at the, for this psalm from his son Absalom, who's stealing his kingdom from him because of the sin in David's own life, his kingdom's gotten weak and Absalom's stealing his kingdom, but he loves God. He's just blown it. 
Oh God, you're my God. And then he says, get these words, earnestly I seek you. Is that true? Do you earnestly seek him? Do you go after him? Not because out of obligation, because that's what Christians are supposed to do, but because you desire him. You long for him. And this next phrase, I love this next phrase, my soul thirsts. Think about the word thirst. That's a, that's a word of desire. I thirst for you. What do you thirst? What do you long for? That's your God, by the way. Whatever you fill in the gap with the answer. What do I, what, when, I'm, when I'm all alone and there's nothing, there's nothing that makes me think about something, where does my mind go to? That's my God. Is it what other people think of me? Is it money? Is it power? Is it God? He says, my soul thirsts for you. Why do you think Jesus says, I am living water? I am the bread of life. He's saying, I'm the only one that can satisfy you. And David's saying, I, I thirst for you. But then it's the next part. It's probably my favorite part of the whole psalm. In a dry and weary land where there is no water, wait, in a dry and weary land, what do you want? Water. He's fleeing from Absalom. He's in the desert. The only thing that all of his circumstances, all of his physical needs, everything should dictate he wants water. But he says, I want you. And so put that in our world. If you, if you, money will do it. In this world where it says, if you just had enough stuff, if you just made the next purchase, if you just, it's like saying, in this world, dry and weary land, where everything points me to money, I want you. Or not money, it's, it's not really the money as much as it's the power. In this place where it's all about power, I want you. In this place with position, if you just had the position, no, I want you. If I just had these people that would praise me, if they would say good things about me, I want you. If I just had sex, if the sex would fulfill just this next encounter, this next experience, no, I want you. In a dry and weary land where everything and every circumstance dictates I want something else, I want you. But why? It's the next verse that answers the question. Because your love. And what is his love? Jesus is love incarnate, love in the flesh. You cannot know true love if you don't understand the cross of Christ. And what he did when he went to the cross to die for your sins, you're a sin. We read that passage of scripture, the wages of our sin is death, that separation from God. All of us have sinned. We fall short of God's glory. Okay, okay, I hear all that. Yeah, no, I agree with the facts. No, do you realize how wretched you are in God's sight? How awful you are? In God? But God loves me. Oh, true, but incomplete if you only take that part. Do you realize that you're an enemy of God, that you've rebelled against God, that God's wrath has to come upon you, but instead he pours it out on his son on the cross who did nothing wrong, who deserves no punishment, but willingly no one takes his life, he lays it down for you. That is love. Because your love is better, better, there's that word, better than my life. Better than anything this life has to offer. Better than this dry and weary land. Better than anything that I could experience here. You're better. My lips will praise you. That's worship from a genuine heart. Psalm 63. These guys didn't get that. They know the words to say. They knew the answers. They knew that God is love. They knew that he loves them. They know, they know the facts. The problem is getting those facts from here into our hearts. And he shows us what happens when people have that, though, with the next picture he gives in verses 41 through 44. And what we see here is not, not just that people use God to hide their true gods, but that there's people that have a compelling view of God. And it leads to a complete commitment to God. When you have a compelling view of God, it's never going to be totally adequate. It's never going to be totally complete. Our minds can't grasp all of that. But he prays that that you know the height and the depth, the length, the width of his love. You can't even get it, but I want you to know it. You you start, you go, and you're in this process. And people who have that, we have this compelling view of God that you realize that he is better. It leads to a complete commitment to him. And that's what we see with this widow. And so we know Jesus ties these passages together because you've got this common connection of this widow. 
In verses 41 through 44, it's a passage that, that many of you might know as the widow with two mites or the widow with a small offering. But look at what, what Jesus says. And, and the context of what's happening here, what he's revealing to us, is this complete commitment. He says, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts of money. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. And calling his disciples to him, and so now it's just Jesus and the 12 disciples, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she gave out of her poverty. And then he gives commentary, put in everything, all she had to live on. And so here, somehow Jesus sneaks off discreetly. Like, think about what's happening. He's been teaching. People are delighting in his teaching. There's large crowds. He's just confronted these Pharisees. He calls them out in some of his teaching, but then it's done. Apparently, it's like, okay, we're dismissed. It's all over. And Jesus slides over, and he starts watching people giving their offering. I wonder what the offering would change like if Jesus was sitting at the back of the room. He starts watching. They don't know, and some of them don't even know who he is. And as far as we know, when you read this passage to you, by the way, notice this woman doesn't know that Jesus praises her. What a surprise if she gets to heaven. I don't even know if she's a believer, but if she gets to heaven, it's like, oh, that, that was me in that story. Are you serious? Who knows how God wants to use what you do. But Jesus sneaks off and he's apparently watching from some distance. And there's, there'd be uh, 13 different trumpet-shaped offering boxes that were surrounding the spot where Jesus is at in the temple. And people are coming in, and it appears that some of them are coming in with a big show. It says here that they threw their, their money in. Many rich people. There's a lot of them coming. So the image that I get of this is like if you watch one of the award shows, and people are coming in on the red carpet, and, and they're, it's like, what are you wearing in light of the robe mention that he's just made here of how people are dressed? I imagine some people are dressed really nice. They're very wealthy. It's like, why did you pick, you know, the Versace thing? Maybe the Sadducees are asking the question. I don't know if they work for whatever. They're asking the questions. And so the people are coming. I imagine them dancing in. They're celebrating. Uh, uh. Uh, uh, paying the tithe, paying the tithe, right? Chris Travis is like, I can't believe it. You just did that around. Now, but here, here, hold on. It's not just left to your pastor's imagination of what's happening here. Where at in the text, right? Where does this come from? Go back to the verse. It says they threw in the money. They weren't just placing an offering. And so they're throwing in the money. So then it's like football, Right? Boom, there's my offering. Uh, uh, uh. So see, it's in the Bible. There it is. The Bee Gees, you didn't even know it. But Jesus isn't impressed. They put in a lot of money. Had some big offerings. But you notice that Jesus' math is different than what our math is? These people are putting in coins into these trumpet-shaped offering boxes. It probably made a lot of noise. Everyone probably knew when a rich person put money in. You know, the coins coming through, they're echoing through this place. Jesus isn't impressed. He says that this woman gave more. And, and there's an emphasis here on her poverty. Verse 42, verse 43, verse 44. Poor, not just a widow, which would, would, everyone would know she's vulnerable in this culture as a widow, but a poor widow. Poor. Did you see this poor widow? Was it because of her clothes that you just knew she was poor? Was she notoriously poor? Like she's the one that's hanging out outside begging it says in her, in her poverty, she gave more. She gave more than they did. And so God's math and our math are not the same. And what she's actually a sign of, she's a symbol of, what she shows us is the picture of what Jesus was talking about last week. Remember when the people came to him and said, uh, what, what, should we render under Caesar uh, the taxes? Should we give him this? Do we pay him or don't we pay him? And he says, give me a coin. 
Give him a coin. Whose image is on this? Whose inscription? Caesar's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Referring to us. We're the ones that bear the image of God. In other words, he wants all of you. But in case that isn't clear, later when the, the teacher of the law asks him the question, he says, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The emphasis is not on these different compartmentalized sections of your life. It's all. He wants all of you, all of you, all of you. So who is Jesus? If he's truly better, the answer is he's worthy of all. He's worthy of my whole life. He can have the functional saviors. He can have the money. He can have my life. Last week, I asked that, that question on, online and, and to y'all. If, if you could ask God one question, what would you ask? I had one friend on Facebook, and you can go see it. He doesn't go to our church, but he asked a question. He said, why does God let people die that love him? These Christians, as he said, some people it's cancer and it's a long period. Some people, and he talked about watching, and this, to my knowledge, and the way he asked the question, I think it doesn't seem like he's a follower of Jesus. He says, you got these people that, I watched this video of 21 Christian men getting their heads chopped off in the Middle East. He said, I forced myself to watch the video. They're praying to their Christian God, and God still allows it to happen, he says. How? And I said, well, have you read Hebrews 11? In Hebrews 11, you see these people, and it's all these examples of people who live by faith. And it says, they were living for a place that was not this place. They weren't fooled into thinking it was all here. And they, they wanted more. And they believed there was a greater reward. And he talks about Moses. And Moses, it says that he did it for Christ. And you think, Moses? How did Moses know who Jesus was? Well, he did. And he left the palace and all the pleasures of that to go and lead a bunch of sinful people, hopefully to God. You think about Abraham. Go, you don't even know where you're going. And he does it because his, he didn't think that his place was here. He believed there was, there was a foundation, that God was the builder of this other place. There's another place that I'm actually living for. I'm a foreigner here. And it goes on to talk about these different people. And some of them had incredible victories. And some of them were sawn in two and beaten. And then Hebrews, you read it on your own. It goes on and he says, the author of Hebrews says, the world is not worthy of these people. Their life was, it was all his. That's what this woman's a picture of in this passage. And, and, and here it's shown through money. And money's a great one to use because numbers don't really lie, right? I mean, you can give money, the Pharisees tithe, and not have your heart in it, but it's not the same as deceiving yourself. Like, well, I serve all the time. I'm always kind. And so, the, like, your checkbook tells a story. And so here he's, why didn't this woman give one coin? She had two coins. The NIV says it's a fraction of a penny. It's actually a little bit more than a fraction of a penny, but most of us don't just know how much the coins are. I don't know what the coins are unless I read this stuff before I get up here. And so we just know that. And so the NIV is just trying to show us it's a very insignificant amount. It's about what she gave was eight minutes worth of work by a day laborer. It's more than a penny, but not much. But she had two of them. If she had just given one, she still a lot more than those wealthy people. The wealthy people gave out of their surplus. She's still given half of everything. Jesus says, no, she's, she's all in. She's got this view of God. And you even see it through her money because where your money is there, your heart will follow. She's, she's not trying to make a show of it. She probably humbly came up to this thing. She puts in these two little, two tiny little coins that are worth almost nothing. But it showed her heart that she was completely surrendered. So what do we do? What do we do? as a church with this. and wrestle with this this week, thinking through this. And I'm going to tell you what we're going to do as a church body. And if you want to be a part of it, you're welcome to. Then no way am I trying to 
force you or coerce you into doing. But one of the things, one of the things we do every week, just so you know, is whenever y'all bring it off, we challenge our, our believers in our church that they should tithe uh, their money. And so we tithe whatever the offerings are. We give 10% of whatever we get away into strategic partners outside the doors of this church. Today what we're going to do is we're going to take, in light of the passage, um, 100% of today's offering, whatever you put in the black boxes, uh, we're going to give away to widows, orphans, uh, single parents, people that are in need. And we have a team that does that on a regular basis that oversees that. It's our benevolence team. It's uh, Jim Manchester. Some of you know him. He's one of the ushers. He's not here today. But Jim Hendren, who's a Celebrate Recovery leader. You've met him before. Uh, Keith Pate are different guys. So if you don't know them, totally fine. You can come to anybody and we'll, we'll connect you with them. But if you know of needs, that's great. But one of the needs that we know that we're going to uh, reach out to is one in our city which is a, a woman who's just gone through the Raleigh Rescue Mission process, one of our strategic partners. Uh, Tiara is her name. She's got five kids, and she's done all the steps to get out of that uh, situation. She's moving into her own place, but she doesn't have any furniture. And so we're going to take today's offering. We're going to buy them some beds, some furniture, different things for their kids. If you want to be a part of that, you're welcome to be. Like I said, no pressure. Might not have brought any money today. If you have a bunch of coins, I would suggest you don't dance towards the box and drop them in. Just in light of the passage. Next week maybe, but probably not today. Maybe you want to text to give. There's information on how you can do that in your worship program. You can do it later today after you get to talk with your spouse, things like that too. If you want to do that, you can give through our app if you want to give online. But whatever's given today um, will go towards uh, an offering for specifically to it. Not even our strategic partners or nothing like that. It'll just go to widows, um, single parents, so mom or dad, and, uh, and orphans. So maybe somebody that needs help in an adoption process. But maybe that's not the application for you today. Maybe, maybe you know somebody. Maybe God's put on your heart, but maybe you drive by a homeless guy on your way to work every Monday and you think, I should stop, I don't have time. To stop. Maybe it's time to buy him lunch. Maybe you know a family that's adopting. Help them to the adoption. But here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you just to give some money or do some thing and check some box. Like, I'm, I'm all in. But if you are all in, then he's given us all this stuff to use, our time and our talents, our money. He wants all of it. Is it? Is it surrendered to him? Maybe he wants you to do something in your life that has to do with one of these other false gods that's tempting for you. Maybe it's not your God and you love God, but there's the temptations, the people, or it's the thing. He wants you to use that for his kingdom. Who is Jesus? Is he really better? If you have an inadequate view of him, no. Like I hear the message, that's a good message. Yep, these people agree with it. I better put on the show. You're just like the hypocrites. But if he's really better, then we, we give him our whole lives, all of it. And so the question that was in this little booklet, by the way, we go through this book, it's life's most important question, and it asks about getting into heaven, and then it gives these, this, these facts about God, and it has scripture in it, and I can show you the booklet if you want to see the actual booklet. It says, uh, heaven's an eternal free gift that's given to us, but we don't deserve the gift because of our sin, and it goes on, there's a penalty for sin, it talks about the penalty, being separated from God, and the punishment of that, and that Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's John 14, 6, you want to a more adequate view of Jesus, he's the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but through him. He's not just a man. He's not just a teacher. He doesn't even leave that as an option. And it talks about faith, how faith is even a gift. But then it asks the question. This is the most important question. This is the question I'll pose to you as we conclude. Can you think of any reason why you wouldn't like to invite Christ into your life right now? Let me rephrase it. What's stopping you from fully surrendering to him? If you're not a believer and you haven't trusted Jesus as your Savior, answer that question. Even if you don't trust Jesus today, it would serve you well to know the answer to that question. I don't believe the claims he's made. I don't believe he really is God. That'd be great for you to know that's where you stand. And then you can investigate those claims yourself. Don't take it from just some guy that stand up on the stage. But if you believe that's true, if you believe that you're a sinner and you believe that you need a Savior and you believe that he's the Lord, then ask him to be your Savior today. What would stop you? And if you have asked him to be your Savior, but 
maybe now you're using them. These other gods, is he, who is Jesus? What's really, why wouldn't you surrender everything, your money, your time, your talents, all of your life to him? Who is Jesus? That's the most important question. Father God, thank you that you loved us so much that you'd introduce us to your son Jesus, that you'd send, you'd put on flesh and come here and know what it is to be tempted and know what it is to be tired and know what it is to be fully man. But being fully God, that you would, you could have just wiped us out. You could have been delivered when you were on the cross by angels, but you died. You died willingly for us. You demonstrated love to us that while we were sinners, that you died for us, that you were rich and you became poor so that we could have your riches the spiritual blessings of heaven, to have eternal life, to have you. And Father, I pray right now if there's anybody here who doesn't know your son Jesus as their Savior, I pray right now that they would trust your son Jesus as Savior. If you know that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus died for your sins, why wouldn't you trust him? And so I just ask you that question. Will you tr- what's stopping you right now from trusting Jesus? Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9 say that, that if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that means he's in charge, that, that he rules your life, then you'll be saved. Then call upon him to be saved right now. And Father, I pray for those that are believers that have called upon your son Jesus to be Savior, but maybe are submitting to other things or maybe haven't fully surrendered to you or maybe there's another area of their life that you want to pry their hands off of that you do that right now. Help us to realize that you are better, better than anything else that we would bow down to. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.